Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. Today, I'm going to be talking with my guest, Yvonne, and I'm going to let Yvonne pronounce her own last name because I just don't speak Dutch correctly at all. (laughs) But we'll be talking about healing from sexual abuse so that being a victim as a child does not turn into a life sentence. So, Yvonne, welcome to the show. Please say your last name for us. Hi, I'm Yvonne Meusen. Wonderful. Okay. Meusen. Okay. So I'm going to probably stick with Yvonne. Mm -hmm. Yvonne has made it her life's work to educate both survivors and therapists about healing from childhood sexual abuse. She is a popular speaker at several Dutch universities, and she gives master classes and organizes symposia about this topic. She, she is the author of I Thrive, Healing Child Sex Abuse, Child Sexual Abuse, which is available in English, and you can find it at www.ithrive-book.com. And you've also written several other books, I believe, which are not yet available in English. Yes? Yes, that is correct. I've, I've written uh, two books as a follow-up. One is about um, child care in institutions, and the other is about different types of therapy that are, um, that are helpful for different types of problems resulting from child sexual abuse. So okay. I've actually written three books to date, and I'm working on my fourth, which will be about the plight of partners of people who have been sexually abused as a child. Yeah, that's that they're an important set of questions. There's an important set of questions that goes comes up for those folks too. Absolutely. So I'm glad you're working on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So give us a little background. Why are you in this field? Well, one of the reasons I'm I'm in this field is because as a child I was sexually abused um, from age twelve to age nineteen and by someone who was, at the time, a friend of the family. Um, and in, in the course of that, I learned to, um, I, I learned to have developed a distaste for myself. I, he came into our family, and um, when, when I was 12 or you know, 13, he was my hero, and he abused that in order to uh, gain sexual favors from me. So, um, what I'd like to help people understand is how this works, how, how people who abuse children operate. So, on the one hand, people can understand how to recognize this process going on, and more importantly, how incredibly um, invasive it is, and, and in particular, how the long, in the long term uh, people suffer from you know, what, what amounts to a 
sort of out of control mechanisms of trying to survive a childhood of sexual abuse. So that's the reason I'm, I'm in this field, to help people understand the mechanics of it. Okay. So we may come back to that question of how, how it, well, may it, let's start there. How does abuse happen? How is it possible that mm-hmm. you were abused for seven years and mm-hmm. your family didn't tune in and recognize what was happening mm-hmm. and stop it? Right, yeah. It's, it's shockingly easy uh, for someone to come in and abuse a child. The, um, the thing that most people don't realize is that grooming, the grooming process, starts with the parents. Um, he was my parents' friends way before he became intimate with me. So he came into our family. He was, um, you know, the hero type. He was loudmouth and brash and everything my family was not. So he stood out. And um, I was 12 at the time, impressionable. Um, and when you're 12, you're trying desperately to, to belong, to find out what your life is about. And um, within my family of origin, I never felt um, like that much like I belonged. Uh, I was the last child in a row of six children. My mom was caring enough in, in, in the physical sense. I had, you know, my, my food and, and clothing and everything taken care of. But there wasn't the, the kind of personal attention that, uh, that he gave me. And by giving me that personal attention, he filled a place in me that was, that was uh, in need that was needing something. And there's always something that a child needs that they're not getting. And, you know, a child abuser is, is very aware of and alert to the needs of the child. There's always something that they are making uh, use of. And in my case, that was my need to have personal attention. And what happened then was blindingly fast, actually. Um, he came into the home and he was telling stories about his travels and he was, you know, a breath of fresh air in an otherwise quite stable environment. And he, he took my, my side in the argument with my mom. I was 12, starting to... You know, get get into like I want to stay up at night. You know, I don't want to go to bed at nine. I want to stay up late. And he took my side, and he got to my parents in the sense that I was allowed to stay up later. And you know, basically, he was my friend. He was my hero. And it didn't take two weeks before he started getting intimate. Okay, I don't want to ask you to say more than you want to say um, oh, but it, it's maybe helpful to know what you're willing to tell us about um, the extent of um, of what happened it's, it's quite easy for me now to talk about it which hasn't always been the case but uh, 
so don't worry about it. Ask me anything, basically. Um, the extent of what happened, the, the first thing that happened is that um, I had my hand in his pocket in like a child-like way of being intimate and in, in his uh, pants pocket. And the next time that happened, he had taken the, the lining out of the pant pocket and he led my hand towards his crotch. And that was the first first time I felt like, oh my God, something is happening that is not okay. It's not, you know, it, I felt immediately that it was crossing a border somehow. And I, but at the time that happened, that, that was about two weeks after he came into my family. Um, I already had thrown my lot in with him. So it's, it's that fast. And my, my parents never noticed um, what was happening. Uh, and if, if they noticed something odd about me, and I did act out quite a bit, they figured out, uh, they, they kind of leaned towards a different explanation of it. Oh, she's into puberty and, you know, going to a, a middle school. Um, just basically saying, oh, well, she's just having a hard time transitioning from child to puber uh, or um, adolescent. Um, Acting out is a term that is familiar to psychologists, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that everybody knows what that means. Could okay. you describe a little of what sort of behavior falls into this category of acting sure. out? Sure. There's, there's actually two, uh, two types of acting out. One is, I, I would probably call that acting in actually, but it's like re becoming really withdrawn, not uh, looking people in the eye, not uh, being accessible to the people around you, which is something I did. I, I wore um, maybe four sweaters each over the other and black sweaters, and I became um, distant to pretty much everybody that perhaps could have helped me. Um, and the other type of acting out, which I did but in a, in a later stage, is actively uh, sexualizing pretty much every contact uh, I had with people, because that was, that was what I was taught. Basically, I was taught to um, trade sex for affection mm -hmm. by the abuse. Mm -hmm. So that's, that became how I, um, you know, how, how I tried to get love from people. And this confusion about love and sexuality is something that, that I carried forward in a lot of my life, actually. But that's... that's two ways in which uh, kids will act out. Now, if it's um, a, a smaller child, um, what will generally happen is they will regress. So, like, for instance, if a child has, uh, has already uh, been potty trained and something like this happens, they will fall back and they will start wetting their pants again, you know, things like that or not sleeping through the night, or things like that. I see. 
that uh, enough of a question or an, enough yeah. of an answer for that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Because, you know, I'm trying to... Yeah, so um, were your parents actually sometimes in the room when a, a man is, you're a child and a man is mm-hmm. leading your hand to intimate yes. contact with his genitals? Were your yes. parents even in the room and they just didn't see it? Yes, they were in the room, they didn't see it. It was happening at the dinner table and, um, you know, there's, there's, like, he was circumspect about it, but, yeah, they were in the room. Okay. I, you know, I... And did, did that, did that progress to his, um, you know, mm-hmm. becoming yes. physically more intimate with you? Yes, and, and quite quickly, actually. Um, after that first introduction, um... I guess it was about a week later that um, he showed me his member in the bathroom, which is where he, he followed me into the bathroom. And from there on, it quickly evolved into visits to my bedroom, helping me with my homework. You know, he was a friend of my parents, so they mm-hmm. trusted him. And so that's... What, would you... Is there advice for parents that comes from that? Should parents just never let, um, never let an adult, even a friend, into the bedroom of their child? Or well, there's there's um, there's a few things that you can monitor, and this is this is actually one of them. You know, having an adult male in uh, the bedroom with a child is, you know, if if that happens a lot then that would definitely be a red flag for me. Um, but anyone having, and, and it's not just men either, but anyone having a more than passing interest in your child, that would be a red flag. And it's not that, you know, I, I, I don't think we all should be paranoid, but I do think a little paranoia <laughs> is in order because it does happen shockingly often. There's... Um, you know, one in four, one in three is, is what the, the numbers are saying. And that's shockingly often. Is, that, remember, is that one in four girls or one in three girls are abused? Yes, yes one, in, one in four, one in three, depending on who you ask. Yeah, right. The and research varies. What about boys? One in six. One in six. One in six. That's and, one it's, six and it, and it can be more damaging, I think, for boys because they're even less likely to be able to do what they need to do to recover from it. Is that true? That's, that's somewhat true. There's, uh, boys have long been um, shamed into thinking that if it happened to them, they were at fault. But the shame is universal. The shame is... Most, most kids think they're to blame. I thought this was something that I brought upon myself. What, was, what, what, how did, what was the logic of that? What did you tell yourself? How was this your fault? This was my fault because I became very close to him. I was in love in my 12-year-old way with him. And I had, um, I had kind of thrown in my lot with him. I, he had helped me... St- stand up against my parents and um, by the time he he became more intimate 
I had already alienated myself from my family. Mm. I, I felt like, you know, nobody loved me and I felt like he was the only one who could... Um, well, basically, he said, he told me that he was the only one that loved me and that my parents would never understand and they, that we had a special kind of love. That was, those are his words. Wow. And I believed him. Yeah, because you so, were a child. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, I had no experience in love. I had no idea about what relationships are. I okay. doubt any 12-year-old has any idea. I had never even kissed. I, I'd never kissed a boy or, or had one of those, uh, you know, crushes or anything like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I had a crush okay. on John Denver, but yeah, <laughs> nice and safe. Didn't we all? <laughs> well, this, this is true, too. <laughs> okay. So what is the first step in healing? The first step in healing is acknowledging Acknowledging that it happened. And um, the, the, if, if you, um, it, for me, that came when I was like 30 years old, when I was, I was um, talking to a friend about this relationship, quote unquote, that I had when I was a child. And she kind of looked at me and she said, oh, did, did he say like... Um, your mom shouldn't know about this, or uh, your mom will never understand. Or, and, and she said, did he say things like, um, you're special, you're so grown up for your age, very recognizable. And I was like flabbergasted. I was like, how did, you, how did she know what he had said to me? And she said, you know, my child, four years old, was abused, and these are the kind of things that the abuser told her. And that was, for me, the first moment that I realized, oh my God, what happened wasn't a relationship, wasn't something, you know, I, I turned over and over in my head, like, it didn't feel good, but what was it? And I finally had a name for it, it was sexual abuse. And that was the moment when I decided to go to a see a therapist. I, it took me two weeks to find a good one, and... Um, I sat there and I told her, I've been abused and you need to help me. And it doesn't work that way, but that was, for me, the first, um, the first impulse to start to heal. So, so the first thing so is acknowledging um, that it happened. realizing that, that you were not a, you're, you're not a child in an, in an unusually exactly. mature relationship for your age. You're actually a victim right. of abuse. Right. Exactly, exactly. And, and um, that's, that's a shocking realization because that, that turns the whole thing upside down. And it finally gave um, a name to what had happened. And it all, that, that also helped me to, um, to start to piece things together. And, mm -hmm. and it's not like you know, suddenly somebody said I had been abused in my life, uh, flip-flop. I, I had no life at that point. I, I was 30 years old. I had never had a relationship other than this, you know, thing that happened in my childhood. 
I had uh, been on the run basically for, for six or seven years, um, just trying to keep my head above water. I was, I was surviving rather than living. Mm-hmm. And all this, all this time I was trying not to think about what happened or in a different period of time I was just thinking about this happened but couldn't figure out what was, what was wrong about it, what was happening mm-hmm. as a result of that. So educating myself about sexual abuse eventually was what, what, um, what helped me see clear of that. Okay. There is no good time in a conversation like this to take a break, but we are going to take a break now, I will, and we will be back to continue the conversation about healing from sexual abuse in a couple of minutes. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Talking today with Yvonne Grayson whose last name I don't pronounce very well. <laughs> I'm Virginia Collin on Family Matters, and Yvonne is the author of I Thrive, Healing Child Sexual Abuse. And we're going to talk now about the next steps in the healing process. First thing is to realize that what happened to you actually was child sexual abuse. 
Right. Um, then you said you went and found a therapist. How did that go? Yeah. Well, I basically I um, I looked for a therapist in the phone book. We we didn't have internet at the time, or at least it wasn't as prevalent. But um, nowadays, I would I would go and look on the internet to find a therapist that specializes in this subject. Um, I I have been in therapy for about 10 years, that's on and off. And I've, um, in, in that period of time, I think I've seen maybe 12, 13 different therapists and different therapeutic approaches. And it's, it's become my uh, conviction that that is what is needed. Um, I used to think that, you know, well, this therapy doesn't work, I'd go do something else. But that really wasn't what was happening. What was happening was I was taking it piecemeal, taking one part at a time and healing that and then finding that, you know, with this therapist or this therapy, I couldn't do the next step. So... Um, there's, there's many different approaches in, in terms of therapy. And I, right now, my most, uh, most of my clients um, basically ask me for advice in which therapy to go follow. And that's a very personal process, and that's a very personal uh, decision. So... Um, it's not like, okay, you do this therapy for three months and then six months of that, and then you're done. It doesn't work that way. That's what I've come to find out, and that's what I've come to uh, believe okay. is necessary to tell people. I think it, it would be helpful to have some examples. What are two or three different approaches to therapy that were helpful to you at some point along the way, <laughs> even though no one of them was sufficient in itself? Mm-hmm. Well, I started out with, with just talk therapy, you know, just talking about it. And uh, that, this was back in the 70s, so there was also a great deal of uh, mother blaming, things like that, which was, which was a sign of the time mostly. But that got me in touch with some of my anger and helped me express some of that anger in, in the therapeutic setting. But um, that wasn't nearly enough, so... What I was went to look for was something that um, that was less therapeutic at first, which was karate lessons. And ah. it's it, I know it doesn't sound like therapy, does it? But oh, it, it was does. Really helpful. It actually does yes. completely. Yes, it was really helpful because I was I I had no connection to my body before I started uh, karate, and one of the things about karate is. If you kick someone or you kick a bag and you're not standing solidly on the ground, you're not in touch with your lower body, which is what I really wasn't before I started doing this, then you fall over. So it is immediate feedback. So that was a very therapeutic thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've also uh, seen a haptotherapist. I'm not sure if, if that's the word for it in English, but it's like a touch therapy. Um, and, and what it really does is in, instead of just, you know, massage is like 
a touch therapy that, that is like invasive. But um, I guess haptotherapy is in invitive. Instead of the therapist touching you, uh, perhaps the therapist will ask you, you know, would you like to grab my hand? And that's an impossible question. Because would I like to do that? I don't know. There's, there's a whole bunch of I don't know in there. Until you, you can feel it, you don't know what you want. So that's, that's a way of getting in touch with your feelings, with your emotions. And, um, but there's also a, a part that, that was particularly helpful, which helped me understand more about child sexual abuse. There's, there's, um, there's a lot of knowledge. There's, um, how do you say that? Um, there's, um, there's some mechanisms that ch children develop to help them cope with the reality of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's actually four of them. One of them is uh, what I've described, withdrawn, withdrawing from contact. So that's like flee. Um, but the other is becoming very angry and expressed anger. Um, there's also something that I have come to call uh, false hope, which is I'm doing my best to, you know, to, to really earn somehow my right to exist. And uh, which is doing, doing your best is um, a way of trying to survive, trying to um, get the other person to not hurt you, um, which, which is difficult because it, does, it never works, so you, you try harder. And, uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly, but the knowing about these mechanisms... Wait, you said there were four, so I got being withdrawn, four. being very angry, having false hope. What was the fourth? Having false hope, having false power. And uh, false power is like, uh, you know, as long as you behave, I will be okay. So these, the, 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 or as long as I, th that also turns, often turns into uh, obsessive compulsive behavior. Like as long as I turn the key 17 times, I will be okay. As long as, you know, as long as something out there is behaving like it ought to, um, I will be okay. So it's, it's ways in which you try to uh, manipulate the world into behaving so that you, you're not, you know, you won't get hurt. Mm -hmm. Basically, that's, um, that's the fourth. Mm -hmm. And I, I've employed each and every one of those tactics in my life. And um, that's actually probably a wrong word for it to, to say I employed them. Because they were employing me. I had no control over them. Mm -hmm. So somebody would say something to me and that would trigger this, this deep-seated fear in me uh, of getting hurt, of, of being abused again and having no boundaries. And, you know, um, and then I would either react very angrily, you know, just, you shouldn't do that. 
or I would react in in a withdrawn way, which is does the term dissociation mean mm-hmm. the same over there? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So yeah, dissociation so, uh, is is disconnecting yourself. You know, not whatever is right. happening to you, you're not experiencing it as something that's right. happening to you. It's as if it's happening to somebody else. Right. So when you're dissociated, I'm, and um, I, I'll give you an example. When I used to go out and into, into a bar setting or something like that, and somebody would sit next to me and offer me a drink, I would get triggered. Because somebody sat next to me, offered me a drink. Obviously, some something, some interaction was required, and there was the threat of sexuality in the encounter. And that's just the offering of the drink. And I would dissociate. And uh. what happens when I dissociate? Well, it, I'm I'm not in control. Mm-hmm. So I'm not consciously making a decision, a choice, or anything. So I'm at the, at the will of whoever I encounter at that point. That's a very unsafe way of living. Yeah. Because, you know, anybody at that point could tell me whatever they wanted to do with me and I would do it. Because that's how I connected, um, how, how I was wired. I was wired to respond to... Um, to a situation like that in a submissive way. Mm -hmm. So when I found out that I was wired that way, I had a period of time when I was like really withdrawn because I didn't want to take any chances of encountering people and then waking up the next day and not really knowing, not, not really having made that choice myself, but having just kind of glided into that because I dissociated. Mm-hmm. So, but you ultimately, I believe, were successful. You ultimately felt like you had worked through yes. the the damage that was done, gotten mm-hmm. back in touch with yourself, your real self. Yes. Um, yes. I kn- can you say more about? Um, you know, what made it possible for you to heal as much as you have? Yeah. There's, there's actually um, three parts of me that needed healing. I needed to understand. That's, that's one part. You can get that in talk therapy. Um, you know, you can, you can learn to understand how the mechanisms work and how they work in, in your life now. And once you understand it, you can, you can create a moment in which you can make an actual choice about it. But then there's also the physical response. And the physical response to, uh, to trauma um, is, is something that, that is beyond your control from your mind. You have to experience that. So I had um, what I told you about the karate thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had different um, the touch therapy. I had a, a number of different... Uh, physical therapies that helped me remain in touch with my body instead of dissociating from it. Whenever, you know, whenever something vaguely sexual happened, I would dissociate and I would not be in control. So it was critical to me to be in my body 
which is what I learned in, in different therapies. And then there's the emotional aspect. And that was perhaps the most difficult because the emotional content, you know, from the moment I, um, I felt this is not okay, this, is, this thing that is happening is not okay, I made a decision to push that feeling away. And with that, I, dissoci- I, I disconnected myself from my feelings. And that's, that's piecemeal, you know, that's the first time and the second time. And the, the more things happen, I learned not to feel. And when you don't feel the bad stuff, you also don't feel the good stuff anymore. So, um, there was a period of time when I was really depressed. And, and depression isn't feeling sad. Feeling sad is an actual feeling. A real depression is not feeling. Not feeling at all. Being um, indifferent to life, to whatever happens to my body, what happens to my brain. Being indifferent. And in a period of time when I was that depressed, I, um, um, at that's the time when I uh, returned to Holland from America. And um, during that period of time, the abuser came to my door to visit me. And um, when he arrived at my door, I was instantly back at the age of 12 or 13 or 14, when I was in his, totally in, under his control. And how old were you actually when he came back to visit? 29. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was standing at the door and I let him in. And part of me, in the back of my mind, was screaming at me, like, don't do this, don't let him in. Don't, you know, part of me was actively... Um, uh, trying to get me to act differently, but I had no, I had nothing to, um, to work with, and the, the tools to work with is what I learned in in different types of therapy. So now, um, you know, after karate, I, I had a period of time when I was like, well, come on, you know, I'll, I'll kick his. Behind you know where. Yes. Um, I got to say, I do love the karate approach. You know, just I I am going to be strong and powerful and know how to defend myself. That knowing how to defend yourself sounds so good. Yeah, that's that's actually precisely what I got out of karate. But it's also, he was so in my mind. He was so... um, tapped into my mind he had helped create the way I think you know he had all but raised me from age 12 um, so that I knew that if I didn't physically kick his behind off the stairs and I let him talk to me like he did when I was 29 I would turn 12 again and I would be defenseless so it, it was necessary to find a physical way to resist that Mm-hmm. I have since learned that, you know, he really wasn't that smart. Um, he really wasn't that impressive because that's that's kind of what time does. I was 13 at the time and, you know, 
it's fairly easy to impress a 13-year-old. And <laughs> I wouldn't be as impressed with his words now, but I didn't know that at the time when I was still healing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's the the physical part. There's the there's the mental part where where you have to really rethink things and redecide things, and um, really think things over in your mind. And and that that's where a therapist can help too. Like you know, is that really true? Did he really love me? That that was the the most difficult thing to face is that he really didn't love me. Never has, never will. That wasn't, that wasn't what I was there for. That wasn't what he was putting into it, the relationship, quote-unquote. Um, but why was that so difficult to face? And I know why that was so difficult to face, because if he didn't love me, who did? Uh, which was, and, that was how he got into your life in the first place. That was how he got into my life in the first place. And he actively participated in creating my isolation. Right, right. That's, and that's how they operate. Okay. They, they, isolated, they isolated me. He isolated me from anybody that could help me by, okay. you know, creating a fight with everybody okay. I knew. In a moment, we're going to take another break And we'll come back and talk more about healing and maybe some about what to do if you are the partner or or loved one of someone who has been abused. Uh, Before we go to break, I just want to mention that I've done three other radio shows with people talking about surviving childhood abuse or trauma. On June 2nd, I talked with Dave Pelzer about a childhood in which really his mother tortured him. Um, on September 29th, I talked with Maya Hope Kidwana about recovering from being raped by several relatives in several homes over the course of her childhood. And then on October 20th, I talked with Brenda Edelman about how telling your story can be a big step towards healing. So those are interviews that some of today's listeners might want to go back to. And I'll be back with Yvonne after a short break. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co-parenting, there is a better way. Family mediation. Save time, save money, and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, 
visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin on Family Matters, talking today about healing from childhood sexual abuse. I'm going to ask my guest, Yvonne, to pronounce her last name again so that we'll hear it said correctly. And also, to tell, us, tell us about your book. Yes. Um, I, I wrote my book um, in, in a 30-day challenge um, as, as 30 blogs, actually, and it was a challenge where I thought, well, you know, I, I can write 30 blogs in one, one month, but I wanted to mean something. I wanted to, what do I know about? And what I came up with was child sexual abuse. And in my book, I, I kind of paint the whole picture of what it, what it is to be sexually abused, what it means to be sexually abused, but also the part where what, how do you heal from that? And it's, it's, uh, it, it's really a nuts and bolts kind of book where uh, you, can, you can get a complete uh, picture of the challenges that are ahead of you if you're healing from child sexual abuse. In Holland, many therapists uh, have bought the book and work with the book. It's actually being used in universities to uh, educate um, therapists and, and counselors, um, social workers, um, because it, it offers um, a clear view into what's involved with healing. And um, so that's, um, that's my pitch for the book, okay. really. Cause so for someone who realizes now that he or she was sexually abused as a child, reading your book would be helpful. It you yes. know, would help them sort out what they need to do to recover. Right, right. It's 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 more or less like a guide, but it's also um, helpful to therapists uh, who, you know, have a rudimentary understanding of uh, the human mind, so to speak, and have have little or no experience dealing with uh, people who have been sexually abused, and there there is. Um, you know, there's, there's not one particular type of therapy, but there is 
something different in the care for people who have been sexually abused, um, which is that by and large they have very little experience in making choices. And in classic therapy, most often the therapist will make choices for you, which is totally the opposite of what is needed in the care for people who have been sexually abused. So it's it's a book that's you know that's fit for both therapists and uh, you know people who have been abused, survivors, survivors who want to be thrivers, because it is possible to heal and it is possible to have um, a whole, complete, wholesome life, even if you've been extensively sexually abused. And I'm I'm living proof of that. I have. Tell me- Tell me more about that. Well, I, I have a good life. I've, I've, um, <laughs> I've worked myself into becoming a, a counselor of sorts. Um, I have um, a, a good practice. I have three books on the market. I have a beautiful love life, friends, family. I, I've even reconnected with my mom, which... You know, during the time when I was abused, we we had a falling out that, you know, that lasted for like 30 years. Wow. And after being able to speak up about the child sexual abuse and after being able to talk to her about her feelings of guilt after I've talked about the abuse, you know, I've I've been able to uh, reconnect with her and have her relieve her of her guilt in the situation. Mm-hmm. So now we have a loving um, mother-daughter relationship, which, you know, if you had asked me this at the start of therapy, I would not have considered that even an option. Uh-huh. That just would not be possible. <laughs> that, yeah, I would have, so the I, impossible I would have called you impossible. crazy. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, you know, I'm here to tell you that the impossible is possible, and it's not impossible, because I'm I'm living it. Yeah. And um, and everything, including having a healthy and happy sex life, which you know, sexuality is part of the experience. So it's sometimes difficult to overcome. Uh, very triggery, very, very um, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But it's possible to overcome that and to have, you know, in- interactive love life with uh, healthy, happy family kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's I'm I'm very happy with my life the way it is now, mm-hmm. and um, so there's there's so many problems that are part of part and parcel of child sexual abuse. It, it's you know people sometimes say it's a life sentence when you've been abused. And I don't think that's true, but it is something that is in the length and width of your lifetime, something that will be with you. I often uh, compare it to, you know, if you've been raised a Catholic, then, you know, I'm, I, I was raised a Catholic and I'm, I'm no longer in the Catholic religion. But when I enter a church and I smell that uh, uh, incense, it does something to me that it doesn't do to someone who was not raised in this church. And that's that's how 
um, child sexual abuse is in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something I've disconnected myself from. It's part of me. Mm-hmm. But it's part of my past, and it, it can be there. And it mm-hmm. doesn't bother me in my daily life. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned that you're working now on a book uh, about what life is like for someone who is the partner or maybe the parent of someone who has been abused. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. Now, my next book is about partners. There's there's a parent book in there somewhere, but I can write only one at the time. Yeah, but, uh, well, the, the partner book... What, what started to happen for me when I, when I became a counselor is that most of my clients were actually partners of people who had been sexually abused. And uh, I, I work online, so people can talk to me through Skype or, or whatever channel. And um, they were telling me horrendous stories about how their life was. Um, for some, some of them told me that for 25 years they had no intimacy with their wives at all. And that's not just no sexual intimacy, that's sitting on the couch and being afraid to take her hand because she can go from zero to 60 in, in no time flat because she gets triggered and is into the anger mode. Um, and, and people put up with that because they love each other. But they also have a very normal uh, need for intimacy and have a normal need for touch. Now, not even even foregoing all the sexual stuff, just being touched is is a very real human need. Yes. And so, so the suffering of partners that I spoke to spoke to me. And I decided that that was going to be one of the books I was going to write. Mm-hmm. And I've since spoken to a lot of partners in the course of researching the book. And it's as pervasive in the lives of partners as it is in the lives of the survivors themselves. It's in family contacts. It's how do you deal with a secret like that? It's... Um, what if the family? What if the perpetrator is a family member that you are regularly confronted with, or have been confronted with? How do you cope with that, and how do you position yourself in this, you know, this whole quagmire of, of divided loyalties? Mm-hmm. That's you know, that's a very difficult difficult challenge for you know for anybody, and for somebody who who loves you to see their way clear in that. Yeah, I'm I'm a little surprised that that relationships last so long. If someone is not really sexually available and not really emotionally available to be intimate with you, Mm -hmm. how can there be a strong enough love to hold that relationship together? I've been surprised myself by some of the loves that I've uh, that I've seen and that I've talked to in the past in the research of the book. And I think one of the things that, um, that helps uh, is, is if your level of need isn't so high. And um, for instance, um, I, I don't know of any research that is done on this topic, but I have an inkling that people with aut- autism or, or something in the autistic spectrum 
uh, are more likely to stay in a relationship like that. Ah, I see. But, you know, that's just a, a thought in my head, and I'd love to see some, someone pick that up and do some research on that, because that would be interesting. Okay. Um, we have just about a minute left, Yvonne, so I want to remind people they can find your book online uh, or find information about it online at mm-hmm. www.ithrive-book.com. Right. And then in this last little piece of the show, is there anything that you would like to repeat for emphasis or anything that you would like to add? Well, I would like to repeat for emphasis that healing is possible. It's not, you know, it's not hopeless. It's not endless either. It's, and it is a, a challenge. It's, you know, it took me 10 years to get where I am today. But darn, <laughs> it's so <laughs> worth it. You know, it's yeah. so worth it to undertake that journey. Because, you know, life is worth, <laughs> life is worth living. Life is phenomenal life is wonderful yeah and if if you're stuck in survival mode listeners out there if you're stuck in survival mode try to find the right kind of help for you try to figure out what it is you need and perhaps my book can help you you know find out where where to start mm-hmm. in your healing journey okay well, thank you so much. It's certainly a message that we want people to carry forward, that there is hope. Life can be good again. Yeah, life's very good. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.